Soul of the Parsha with Rabbi Nir Menusi. This class is made possible by our kind supporters over at Patreon. Thank you and enjoy the class. Shalom everyone. Good evening. Great to see all of you. Today we're going to talk about yesterday's Parsha. We're going to talk about Parsha Pinchas. So though the Parsha is behind us, um, we the topic what we want to talk about, the message we want to get out of the parsha, is absolutely relevant all year round. So, um, so that's what we're going to do this evening. Um, so the topic that we want to talk about, and we want to learn this from Pinchas, the protagonist uh, and the person after whom the parsha is named, uh, the topic we want to talk about is the rectification of speech. Although what Pinchas did was without words, it was an action, it was an act. He did something, he didn't speak. We can learn something from him, from what he represents, from what he did, about rectified speech, especially regarding topics similar to the ones Pinchas uh, faced, which is the topic of promiscuity, permissiveness, especially sexual promiscuity that is running rampant in the world. The world is growing more extreme in its uh, lack of boundaries over the past few decades. It seems sometimes that almost every year brings a new a new taboo is broken, another barrier is crossed, and many people from the older generation, many people who are, who either were never part of this uh, atmosphere of liberalism and promiscuity, or who have been part of it, but have been disillusioned by it. All these people stand facing this cultural revolution and that's growing, as I said, more extreme with every year and are uncertain as to what they should do about it. How should they face it? How should they react to it? Should they still, should they remain silent? Should they speak out? Should they do something? What should they do? What should they say? It seems many times that whatever you say doesn't, doesn't affect anyone the chasm between the people celebrating all these uh, new boundaries that are broken and all these new forms of activity and identity and uh, relationships, all these ideas that are being explored, which is another word for saying that anything goes, or almost anything goes. Uh, there is such a chasm between this culture and people who, again, either because they were never part of it or because they have been, they, they, they came out of it. They realized it's, it's not as beautiful and wonderful and freeing as it purports to be. The chasm is so great, people don't know what to do. And that's what we want to talk about. So let's remind ourselves of what's going on in the beginning of the parasha of Pinchas which is really a continuation of the, parasha, of the parasha that came just before it, which was Balak. So at the end of the parasha, Balak, 
uh, after the failed attempts of um, uh, Balak and Bil'am to curse the Jewish people. They tried many, many times. It didn't work. Then they try out something else. It doesn't say explicitly that it was them doing this, but uh, it, the sages say it was Bil'am's second advice, second idea. First, they tried attacking us from above, so to speak, via curses, supernatural means. It didn't work. And then they tried attacking us with very natural means, which was by sending the daughters of Moab and the daughters of Midian to tempt the Jewish men. And that worked. <laughs> All the curses didn't work. The curses became blessings. But when they, they went with a straightforward method of just trying to tempt us, that worked uh, terribly well. <laughs> and, and many, many Jewish men started sinning. And they started sinning with the Moabite and Midianite women. And not only was it the sin of Arayot, that is, sexual sins, it was also uh, idolatry, because these women tempted them to bow down before their idol. And their idol was the very strange idol called Baal Peor. Baal Peor was an idol that was served in a unique way. Uh, you didn't bow down before it, you didn't face it, you didn't honor it. it. The way you would serve that idol was that you turned your back to it and you would pour down your excrement on this idol. That was the way it was served. And what the women did was that they used the fact that they tempted the men, and the men were very eager, and then, then they got to the point that they couldn't control themselves anymore, and then just before letting them have them, these women said, now, before you can have me, you need to bow down before my idol. And that pretty much takes away your, your free will. Um, well, this is called in Chazal's word, en apotropus la'arayot. Once the sexual urge awakens, uh, no one is guarded from it. So they use this urge in order to also cause the Jewish men to bow down before, uh, in, in, in that particular way, uh, before this idol. So it was a very low point. And it was this double sin, and it was expanding. And then the the climax, the most, the most terrible moment, was that one of the chiefs of the tribe of Shimon, his name was Zimri ben Kozbi, his name isn't mentioned, nor uh, his title. It's not mentioned at Parashat Balak, uh, probably in order to, to honor him. But once uh, Pinchas is commemorated, in the beginning of the Parashat Pinchas, his identity is revealed, that he wasn't just some person, he was a very important person. He was one of the chiefs of the tribe of Shimon. And he himself, not some lowly person, he himself uh, had a union, an intimate union, with a very, very important Midianite woman who was the daughter of one of the chiefs of Midian. So she was this very important Midianite woman, and she was together with this very important Jewish man. And, of course, that makes everything even worse because they're, so, they're of so, such high stature. They're respected, and people look up to them, and people copy them. 
and their role models, basically. So when the role models do it, it everything becomes worse. And of course, all this is very familiar to anyone who's been alive during the past 50 years. All this is happening now, not just for the Jewish people, but for all over the world. That the people that everyone looks up to, the people on television, the people, the, the Hollywood stars, and politicians, and, and everyone who's, uh, who's, uh, who's society's role models, they all behave according to, to the, the ideas of sexual liberalism. So anyway, they did what they did, and, and then we see something very interesting. We see two responses. One response um, is that the elders, including Moshe himself, are absolutely shocked. And they're so shocked, they're not able to do anything except cry. They start weeping. They look around them, and everyone is doing what they're doing. And not only that, but uh, God started punishing all the sinners. God sent an angel. It's alluded to in a very, in a very subtle way. In the well, not as very subtle way, but it doesn't say explicitly that there was an angel. Who, who, who did this, it just says that there was a magefa, a kind of plague or something that's mysterious, but the sages say an angel came down and started striking the sinners. So people were now dying because of this. They were immediately punished. And yet it was going on. So everything is so, hor- so horrendous Then the elders and Mo- Moshe himself are just paralyzed and with shock. So this is the first response. And, and it, it comes across as weeping. So maybe they're, they're weeping because it's so tragic. Maybe they're weeping because they feel that all of this behavior is coming out of some deep, deep sadness, a deep sense of loss that the Jewish people are experiencing now in the 40th year in the desert. Could be a lot of reasons. We just know that they wept. And we can imagine various kinds of weeping, of tears, of crying out, but it doesn't matter because all these forms didn't do anything about what's going on. They just, they were passive about it. Crying is not acting. Then the second response is, of course, Pinchas's response. Pinchas was the youngest of the group. Well, he was over 40. But he was the youngest of all those people weeping. And interestingly, he was the son of a Kohen, and the grandson of a Kohen was the son of Elazar Kohen, and the grandson of Aaron Kohen, the priest. And yet, for a very interesting reason, he was not a priest himself. It was the only time in the history of priesthood, in, the Jewish, in Jewish history, that you had someone who was part of Aaron's family, but who, he wasn't a priest. Why? Because the way it worked was that in the second year of the desert, when the tabernacle was uh, built, and um, it, it was, uh, what's the word again? Um, it was initiated. Um, then Aaron became a priest, his sons became priests, and all future progeny, i.e., any grandchild who would be born from that point onward, they would become priests. But there was one grandchild that was already born, 
and he wasn't he didn't become a priest and this was Pinchas this is very very interesting in and of itself so Pinchas this son and grandson of priests who is not a priest which makes him just a Levite um, sees all this and and decides to act according to one opinion he he asked Moshe about it he told him he reminded him Moshe you told us when you taught us Torah, when you came down from Mount Sinai, you taught us that when something like this is happening, it is permissible to kill the sinners. Because the disgrace of the Chilul HaKodesh um, is so great that uh, it's permissible to do so. It's a unique, serial, unique situation. And Moshe told him, you're right, I forgot, you're right, and, you, and so please go ahead and do this. According to another opinion, he didn't even bother to ask, because there was no time to ask. And this is the principle that says, um, um, When God's name is being uh, disgraced or dishonored or there's sacrilege, then you don't wait for the rabbis to ask their permission, you can act on your own. So this is a more radical opinion, that he didn't even ask. What he did was very famous, and to our ears and imagination, a bit hard to swallow, uh, but these are, these are biblical times. He took a, a spear, and he went ahead, and he killed the two sinners, uh, by piercing them together with the spears, with with this spear, and and then immediately the angel killing everyone stopped. So what happened was that he actually saved a lot of lives immediately when he did this. This was he sanctified God's name. This was an act of zeal. Pinchas is the archetypal zealot. In Hebrew, it's called Kanaut, Kanai. Kanai is a zealot. Someone who doesn't just care deeply about everything that's holy, but is willing to act upon it and is willing to do something very radical about it that most people would consider extreme. But the Torah, and this becomes very clear, well, it, beca- it, be- it begins to become clear at the end of Balak when we're told that immediately all the, the, the people dying stopped dying. So he, it was clear it was a good thing. But then in the beginning of Parshat Pinchas, um, it becomes even, even, even more, uh, it becomes even more clear that the Torah looks highly at what Pinchas did. What happens is that he has a Parsha named after him, and God tells everyone that Pinchas is now going to become a priest. He merited to become a priest. And he receives something called Brit Shalom, a covenant of peace, which is a very, very mysterious notion, considering what he did was one of the least peaceful things we can imagine. But although he did this very unpeaceful thing, he is rewarded with a covenant of peace, Brit Shalom. And he gets to become a priest, which he wasn't supposed to be originally, or so it would it would appear.
So the first, um, the first thing we want to understand is what, why is the Torah giving such a positive view of kanaut, of extremism, of zealotry, if you can say that, zealousy, if you can say that, I don't know, uh, or zeal, as I said before. And I think it becomes very interesting when you look at this story that he wasn't supposed to be a priest in the beginning. Well, it, everything was supposed to happen, so it was supposed to happen that he wasn't a priest throughout most of his life. He grew up not as a priest. He grew up as a Levite. And, and then he became a priest only after he did this. So this tells us something very, very deep about this act that he did. And then we're going to ask, so how can we... Um, how, what do we do in our generation with Pinchas? But before we ask this, what we can do in our generation with Pinchas, because we live in a Hasidic generation, in a Hasidic generation, we don't want to kill anyone. We want to give every rasha, every someone who's wicked, who's, who's doing sins, we want to give him more and more chances to redeem himself, more and more chances to do tshuva. And even when the rabbi, when the rabbi, when the Lubavitcher rabbi said that we should look up to Pinchas, what he meant was that looking at the world today with so many people far away from religion, far away from holiness, far away from leading a rectified, living, leading a rectified life, then we shouldn't start asking the, 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 the rabbis that could tell us, maybe you should do it, you shouldn't go out and teach other Jews or help other Jews, maybe you should learn more Torah. You don't ask those people. You go out and you start helping Jews. So he said we should learn from Pinchas the fact that he, he didn't ask and he didn't wait for anyone and it he, he, he wasn't enough for him to just cry. He says crying doesn't help. People out there are walking around the world they have no idea that God exists or that He has given us such a beautiful Torah and, and go out and, 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 and teach Torah and, and bring Jews closer, and non-Jews, everyone, bring everyone closer to, to God and to faith. But, but look what he did. He said we should be like Pinchas in the sense that we should go out and do instead of stand and cry. But what we should do is hug everyone and love everyone and kiss everyone and tell everyone how much we love them, although they're sinners. So that's... On the one hand, it's like Pinchas. On the other hand, it's the, it's the opposite of Pinchas. Why? Because we're, this is a Hasidic generation. And in fact, not only the, long before Hasidur, it was very obvious that no one should behave like, like Pinchas. On the other hand, we do have this figure in the Tanakh, in the Torah. So, and, this, and the Torah is eternal. So what do we do with this? So first, we need to understand what is the role of zeal in the framework of serving God and in particular in the framework of the priesthood. So, just consider the, the following idea. The priesthood, it, it's all coming from Aaron. Aaron was a lover of peace. Aaron was very peaceful. He was a peaceful person and a loving person. We should all aspire to be students of Aaron, who was a lover of peace and a chaser of peace. He did everything in his power to bring peace between husbands and wives and between friends. So he was full of love and peace. Peace and love. Aaron is the archetypal peace and love. Uh, you know, uh, someone who, who that, that's what he goes crazy for. 
But there's something unbalanced about just saying peace and love all day. As we all know, the Beatles were wrong when they said all you need is love. It's not all you need. It's a lot of what you need. It's much of what you need. It's not all you need. And in fact, love itself cannot survive and cannot prosper without at least a little bit of the energy that's the opposite of love, the opposite of Ahava, which is Yir'ah, awe, might, jealousy, having boundaries, guarding love, being envious of the idea of love being disappearing, being trampled. If you love someone, then you, you care about him very much, and you care about the love you have, you want to guard it. You want to protect it. You want to shield it. All this means setting boundaries. Love is something very soft, very mellow. It embraces you. It loves you the way you are. But, as I said, love needs, the light of love needs a vessel to exist in. And the vessel needs to be tough. And this toughness and this sort of envy or jealousy, or a little bit of zeal, is important in order to protect love and protect the sanctity of love in relationships. We need to say that not everything that appears as love is love. Sometimes it's lust. Sometimes it's just something temporary. Sometimes it's just using the other person, even if they consent. Sometimes people use one another with mutual consent, but they're still only using one another, which means something very egoistical is going on. Today's slogan is, love is love. But that's just as wrong as what the, what, what the Beatles said. Not all love is love. Not everything that appears to be love, or that we experience initially as love, is love. There are very many, many different kinds of love, and some of them aren't really love. Or they're not worthy of the name. In order to make this separation, we need the opposite energy of love. We need the energy of awe, fear, um, might, ira, gvura. One pre, one descendant of Aaron needed to grow up not as a priest. All the other priests, ever since Aaron himself, and up to all priests living today, were. Our priests, from the moment they were born, except well, Aaron and his children, from the moment they were anointed to be priests, and all their descendants, from the moment they're born, they're priests. So they're part of this whole thing. But there was one grandson who needed to grow up a Levite. Why? Because Levites represent the attribute of awe. Priests represent the attribute of love, and Levites represent the the attribute of awe, of fear. So he needed to grow up fearful, awful, to identify with this attribute. And once he was, he truly identified with it, and he came out and said, not all love is love. What's going on with Zimri, the chief of Shimon, and Kozbi, the, this princess of Midian, is not love. <laughs> it's the opposite of love. And it's sacrilegious, it's sacrilegious against God and against love and against the sanctity of the covenant between a man and a woman and between 
and between the Jewish people and their God. And this must be this this must be put to to an end. He was able to become a priest, and then in order to bring this attribute into the priesthood and really give all of us a big lesson, and the big lesson was love needs to be balanced with its opposite attribute. So one person had to grow up outside of this peace and love family in order to teach us that not all you need is love, you need a little bit of something else, the opposite of love also. And it's not hate, by the way. It's not hate. You can say that the opposite of love is hate, but that's not the opposite that Kabbalah and Hasidut talk about. The opposite of love is, as I said, it's fear or awe. So he brought that into the fold. So we know, we learn from this, that, and this is the, the major lesson to be learned from Pinchas, is that we need also this element. Should we... Um, manifest it as he did? Absolutely not. Because that was a different time. And it was just one, just like we had this one person growing up outside of the priesthood and then becoming a priest and bringing this attribute in, we only needed one person to do what he did. And we don't need that anymore. Now we need, everyone is Zimri. Everyone, half the world, half the Jewish world is marrying non-Jews. And at, at least in the United States and many other places. And and many, many Jews live in a way that's uh, very promiscuous. And you, God forbid, we should hurt them in, any, in the slightest way. So we should love them. But we should have this feeling of not being apathetic about it. So that's what we should take from Pinchas, not to be apathetic about it. But we still need to understand, how can we update Pinchas to our generation? How can we still adopt Pinchas as a role model? for our generation, without copying the act that he did, but still learning something from him. Not say, oh, Pinchas, he, we don't want to learn anything from him anymore. So what do we do? So this we're going to, is going to go by two steps. So the first step, it comes from Chazal, saying that Pinchas was Eliyahu the prophet, Elijah the prophet. How can that be? Elijah hasn't been born yet. Elijah is going to live in, he's coming in the book of Kings. That's in the future. So the explanation is that Elijah hasn't been born yet, but his soul was a very ancient soul. He first came to the world as Pinchas, and then later on it came into the world as Elijah. And it's the same soul. How do we see the connection between the uh, character of Elijah, Eliyahu, and the character of Pinchas? They're both jealous. They're both zealots. So Pinchas is this story, and the story of Eliyahu is that he killed all the false prophets of the god Baal. Baal, by the way, is similar to Baal Peor, but it wasn't Baal Peor, it was something more general. It was a, a, just a regular, this very popular god in, in his time, it was called the god of Baal. And many Jews were tempted to follow this, the, the uh, prophets so-called prophets of this god. And Elijah was able to do this great miracle and to prove them wrong. And then once he, all the Jewish people saw that they're false prophets and it's a false idol, he chased them all and he killed all of them. This brought about the wrath of the evil queen Jezebel. And she started uh, persecuting Elijah. She wanted to kill him. 
So he ran away. For 40 days and nights he ran away. And where did he arrive? He arrived at Mount Sinai. And when he arrived at Mount Sinai, God asked him, What are you doing here, Eliyahu? And then he, he told him, I'm going to translate. So Elijah says, I have been jealous, envious of God, the Lord of hosts. This is very similar to what God said of Pinchas. is almost the same as I have been jealous. Using the, 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 the root for jealousy twice. Uh, because they have deserted your covenant, the, the children of Israel, and they broke your altars, and they killed your your prophets, and I am now the only one who cares about you. And now they, they, they're trying to kill me also. He says all this. So all this made him very similar to Pinchas. So that's why the sages say it's the same soul. But what then what the sages do is something very interesting. They say, they have this midrash, that God is telling Eliyahu slash Pinchas, says, you're always jealous. You're always so jealous. You were jealous as Pinchas. Now you're jealous as Eliyahu. I hereby decree that you are to come to each and every Brit Milah circumcision that Jews do from now on till the end of times. Till you come announcing the coming of Mashiach, you need to arrive each in each and every circumcision. And as we all know, every circumcision, we have a chair for Eliyahu the prophet. He is called the angel of the Brit, the angel of circumcision. So the word Brit here is of course the word for covenant. That's what uh, Pinchas cared about and he received the covenant of peace. That's what uh, Eliyahu cared about. And together, this soul is called the angel of the Brit, the angel of the, of the covenant or of circumcision. Now, it's very, very interesting, this Midrash. And the reason is that it's unclear if this decree that Eliyahu has to come to each and every circumcision is a reward or a punishment. We could see it as a reward. The reward is you care so much, so much about the covenant, and you were so jealous, so because you're so jealous, and you're, you have this kin'ah, this kana'ut, and this is exactly the kind of energy we need in order to circumcise an eight-day-old eight eight baby, and hereby we bring him into the covenant of Abraham and the covenant of the Jewish people, and it's also it's symbolic of rectifying the sexual urge, right? Circumcision is symbolic of taking the sexual urge, and limiting it, and sanctifying it, and not letting it control you, and rule you. It doesn't, of course, assure the child that's circumcised that he's going to be absolutely rectified sexually. Of course not, because we still have free will. And the yetzel, the inclination is still there. But it's like a signpost saying, try and diminish it. Try and limit it. Try and sanctify it. Don't don't, uh, you know, think that the sexual urge and sexual liberalism, that's the, the main thing in the world. We take off the foreskin, meaning we take off, we take off a little bit of the pleasure, a little bit of, of the centrality of it, and so on. So, that's one explanation, that it's a reward. He, all, all circumcisions are, are because, by virtue of, Pinchas and Eliyahu. 
we should thank them. That's why we honor them by inviting them to the circumcision. Thank you, Pinchas and Eliyahu, for being jealous, and you gave us the power to circumcise. But there's another reading. The other reading is that it's a punishment that they need to come to each and every circumcision. Why? When, when the, the Midrash started, you were so jealous all the time. And another way of, think, of reading this is saying you're so suspicious all the time of Jews not caring enough about the sanctity of the covenant. And you don't trust them. You don't believe that they can do tshuva. So you go and you kill the sinners in the desert, and you go and you kill the prophets of the Baal. And why do you have to be so jealous? You don't have to be so jealous. That's another reading. And now, so now, your punishment, your lesson, is that you need to come to each and every circumcision. And then you can, you can see, Jews do care about the covenant, and the holiness, and the sanctity of the covenant. They care about it very, very much. And they observe it very strictly, almost all Jews. Even if they're very secular, almost all of them, they circumcise. Today, part of the whole uh, deterioration that we're talking about is that more and more Jews, unfortunately, stop. But still, even now, it's the vast majority do circumcise. So, it is punishment. Now, the fact that we can read the Midrash in two ways is very, very, is very deep, very interesting. And really what it teaches us, this whole, ident- this whole identification of Pinchas and Eliyahu, what it teaches us is that this whole connection with these two figures and the idea of circumcision, it teaches us that Pinchas and Eliyahu were very, very rectified in terms of their own Yetzel. What they did was also something that could be construed as, be, as coming out of it a, a kind of Yetzel. Not the sexual drive, but the, the violent, a violent drive. That's how it could be construed. You see someone who has a violent streak to them. And then they have this urge, and maybe they can't control themselves. But then this, they're identifying the two of them and connecting them to the topic of Brit, on the one hand saying they're the masters, the angel of Brit, and on the other hand saying they should con- further control themselves so that they don't be, so, don't be too harsh on other Jews. That's the whole work with the, with the Brit Milah, is that I need to constantly remove the foreskin of my own heart which means I'm working on myself. I'm not rectifying others. I'm asking, am I rectified? And I'm trying to be as rectified as I can, and then a little bit more also. That's the tension between the two readings. They're the angels of the Brit, but then they, they have to go as a punishment and see every Brit, so that they, they, they learn from other Jews how to do this. So it's all about them during their own Tikkun Brit. Right? This whole rectifying the sexual urge is called Shmirat Abrit, guarding the covenant, or Tikkun Abrit, rectif- rectifying the covenant. The, everything that has to do with, uh, with uh, rectifying how we, how we behave with our sexual desires. So they were very rectified. And this, does us, this is the first step, the first step in updating or understanding how we can learn from Pinchas in our own Hasidic generation. It, the focus is us. 
I see the Baal Shem Tov told us something very, very important. Whenever you see someone doing something wrong, you should say to yourself, the reason I was shown this is that the same sin and the same fault and the same blemish also exist within me. And it could very well be that within me it's a, only a little, tiny little bit of what this other person is doing. I'm just shown it's a mirror, that what the other person is my mirror, but it's not, he's not just a mirror, he's a magnifying glass also. So it could very well be that what he's doing is radically worse than what I'm doing. That could absolutely be. And you can say, well, I, I just have a little bit of that fault. But he has so much of it, it doesn't matter. You have to rectify your tiny little bit, not his huge bit. He's your, magnify, he's your magnifying mirror. He shows you what exists within you. And we all know that the, command, the commandment to rebuke others, tochacha, you can only do this after you first rebuke yourself. So what we learn from this is that Pinchas and Eliyahu first rebuked themselves. They were very rectified in Shmirat Abrit, in the rectifying and the guarding of the covenant. So when, when they saw the people being promiscuous or serving idols, they first looked inside and saying, I must have the same thing. I should now be very, very, very careful not to rebuke them or to, pu- or to punish them from a, a, uh, an instinctive, in, an, in an instinctive way, in a way that's just because I feel like it, because I'm driven to it. I have to be totally in control of myself. There are two elements visual elements in the opening verses of Parashat Pinchas that teach us about the fact that Pinchas was extremely rectified in controlling his own desires. And although he did something very violent, there was absolutely no violence in his heart as he did it. He was absolutely rectified. He did it very coolly, very calculated, and in a good way. Not in, in a, well, not in a cold-hearted way, in a, in a good way in the sense that he, he understood that this is the right thing to do. He remembered this is the commandment right now to do. And it, it's going to save a lot of lives. And it was, there was absolutely no violent urge or desire involved. What are the two visual uh, hints? So, two letters in the very opening verses are written in a weird way, in a strange way. The first is the Yud of Pinchas. Pinchas, we don't even need to use a yud when we write it. Today, most people, when they write Pinchas, they don't put a yud in it. Although in modern Hebrew, people put as much as many vowels as they can. <laughs> but when we write Pinchas today, you wouldn't put it. But here, it's, the Torah does put this yud every time. But in the beginning of Parsha Pinchas, we did, that's the Pinchas that, from which the name of the Parsha comes. The yud is a small yud. And this is interesting because every letter somewhere in the Tanakh appears once in a small version, once in a big version. But the thing is that the tiny Yud already appears somewhere. This is a, sec- a second time that this tiny Yud appears, and it's coming from the Zohar. That's very unique, that the, hal- the Halacha comes from Kabbalah, and not the other way around. First the Zohar said it, 
and then uh, the the poskim who, who who give the laws, who, who give the details of the laws, they said we should put it. And in most of Torah books, you would see the tiny yud. It it wasn't part of the regular series of big versus small letters. It's another small letter. It's coming from the Zohar. So. What does this mean? So the Rebbe of Komarna, he was a great Hasidic rabbi, he said, Yud is the smallest of letters. And here it's even smaller. Yud is the smallest of letters. It symbolizes the small organ in the man's body. This is how the sages call the organ of the covenant. They call it the small organ. And they say there is a small organ, one who constantly feeds him is constantly hungry. But the one who who doesn't feed him, who sort of not hungers him, how do you say, mar'ivo, who doesn't feed him, he is full, he's satisfied. If you constantly feed the 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 urge, the yetzel, you uh, it's, you never have enough. But if you can control yourself, then you're you feel satisfied. So anyway, it's called a small organ. So we said the yud is small, even smaller than it is in order to symbolize the fact that Pinchas was extremely rectified in guarding the covenant. That's first hint. Second hint, when we have this term that I, use, I mentioned before, Briti Shalom, my covenant of peace, God is giving him the, my covenant of peace, we have an even stranger phenomena. And it's unique in the entire Torah. It's not just it's another time a tiny yud appears. The Vav of the word Shalom, and it's the only case, we have this in the entire Tanakh, is called the Vav Kti'ah. Vav Kti'ah means a broken down Vav, it's cut in the middle. It's like a Yud, and then there's a gap, and then there's a line. This is the Vav of Briti Shalom. So there are many explanations for this. One explanation is that oh, there was something, it suggests that what we said before, he did something unpeaceful. How can he get a covenant of peace? So the covenant of peace was a little bit broken. That's the usual explanation. But there is another explanation that fits perfectly with what, we want, what we're trying to say now. If the Vav, the Vav is like a line with a top, and the top now looks like a Yud, and then the gap, and then the line. So the word Yud is, is, is connected to the word Yad, his hand. We can imagine the Vav with the Yud on the top is like an illustration of Pinchas holding the spear. The hand is on top, he pointed the spear downwards. So the hand is on top and then the line is the spear. But there's a gap between the hand and the spear. They don't mix. He he separated himself from the violence of the spear. There was no violence in his hand, in his heart, in him. There was this gap, this buried, this uh, separation between his hand and the spear. The spear is, a, is, is, an, is an instrument of violence. It's an instrument of killing. And that's what he did. But there was this separation. It's like when, when you're educating a child... Sometimes you need to sh display anger. But you should do it in a way that you're not angry at all. It's hard. 
But that's the, the ideal in Hasidut to aspire to, that you're never angry at your child. However, sometimes you pretend to be angry so that they learn that this is a, a boundary they shouldn't cross. This is like the hand holding the spear, but with this separation. Beautiful image. So that's the first thing. So all these, these two hands were part of the first step. The first step was that um, Pinchas first works on himself. Faced with today's permissiveness, with today's almost anarchic uh, culture regarding sexuality, looking at becoming so crazy and dominating the public sphere so much, we should say, in what way am I unrectified in this area? That I'm still not controlling my urges enough. And also even the fact that I want to shout at them, or I want to say it's crazy, or I want to say stop it, and I should stop, and say I need to work on myself. This is the first thing. The second is comes from the Book of Yetzirah, Book of Formation. Second step in updating Pinchas to our generation, to our Hasidic generation. The first step was working on our own selves, seeing the sins of the other as reflections of sins within us, even if ever more subtle. They could be ever more subtle, but they're ours, and that's what we need to fix. That was the first step. Second step comes from Sefer Yetzirah. Sefer Yetzirah says something very, very interesting. Sefer Yitzhah is really saying, the human body, look, look, look at the human body, we all know the human body is symmetrical. It has a right-left symmetry. It's not a perfect one, but it's, it's pretty perfect. That's how it should be. But there's also a kind of top-down symmetry. Our two legs are crude reflections of our two hands. There's the same bones, same structure. In animals, you can it's just four legs, many animals. But for us, the hands are very agile and very, very subtle in their actions. And then the legs are sort of crude reflections of our hands. And the ten toes are crude, very crude reflections of the ten fingers. In Kabbalah, this is suggesting that the ten sefirot, the ten emanations in Kabbalah, they appear in every world. And if you look at each, at, at each pair of worlds, then the higher manifestation of the Ten Sfirot is very subtle, very luminescent, very beautiful. And the lower one is a cruder, darker reflection of it. It's like the hands and the legs, the hands and the feet. And the more you descend, the more it's like, a, it's like feet. And the higher you go up, it's more like it's like hands. But then if we go one step further with this uh, symmetry, then the, the Sefer Yetzirah says that there is a correspondence between the organ of the covenant, which, by the way, women have too, except it goes, it goes inside instead of outside. And they don't need to be circumcised. But the way Chazal say this, they say that they're just born circumcised. They don't say they have nothing to do with circumcision. They say women are born circumcised. So, but that means that there is a connection because rectifying our sexual urges—that's for everyone, men and women. It's different, but it's. But women also have to work on this. 
So the organ of the covenant for men is going outside, for men is going inside, but it's basically it's, it's the same thing. So anyway, the organ of the covenant is reflected in the tongue within the mouth. The organ is just between the ten toes, and the mouth is just between the ten fingers. And so the Sefer Yetzirah, Book of Formation, says, there are two covenants in the human body. Brit HaMa'or, the covenant of the skin, which is really circumcision, and the covenant of the tongue, Brit HaLashon. And just like the feet are crude reflections of the hands, the sexual organ is a crude reflection of the tongue. The tongue and the organ are our organs of procreation. We procreate spiritually with our mouth, speaking, and we procreate physically with our procreative organs. But it's the same thing. Even today, when we know about genetics, we know it's even the same down to the idea that it's it's alphabetical. It's taking letters and putting them together because the DNA is like it's like a language. It's like a, it's like a lot of different letters, and it's combination of letters. That's what gives us a, our DNA, so to speak. But even we, without going into this, it's like two organs of procreation: the tongue and the organ of the covenant. And this means that everything we know about guarding the covenant rectifying the covenant, controlling our sexual urges, sanctifying our sexual urge to a marital union, not being lustful, and so on. All this applies to the mouth as well. If you speak to someone harshly, and you don't listen to them, and you shout at them, it's a, a little bit like sexual abuse. It's a little bit like sexual harassment. If you say something and they're not listening, and you're not checking if they're listening or not. By the way, there's also, there's a foreskin on the heart, there's a foreskin on the lips. Moshe said, I have foreskin on my lips, I can't speak, I stutter. And there's also foreskin on the ears. When you're telling someone something, you first need to see that their ears are circumcised, i.e. that they're able to listen to you. Maybe you need to circumcise their ears very, very gently. If you can't, don't, don't tell them what they can't hear. If you tell people something that they can't really hear you, this is called varim she'einam nishma'im, that cannot be heard, because people, they, they can't hear them, they, it closes them up. This is like spilling your seed in vain. Your words are like seed. They need to be planted in the other person's heart. They need to come out of your heart, truly, and then they can enter the other person's heart. If you say them in a way that you're just trying to feel better about yourself, or you're trying to just get it off your chest, or you feel that you, you're you just, you know, what's the word, um, take, taking off or putting off steam, how do you say? Putting out steam. Um, that means 
that you're not checking, you're not verifying, you're not sensitive to, to see that your words can actually enter the other person's ears and heart. And your words spill in vain. It's like uh, m masturbation. It's only for you, it's not for the other person. In order to speak properly, you need to rectify your tongue just like we rectify our sexual urges. You have to... There has to be a chash before the mal. Be silent before you speak. When you're silent, you're able to... to gauge what you should say, what you shouldn't say, what you can say, what you can't say, what people can hear, what people can't hear, what are the right words to say, what is the right tone with which to say it. So the, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that the second step in updating Pinchas to our generation is not just saying, well, I'm going to rectify my own sexual urges. And then once I do that, I can start rebuking the, the world that's so permissive and so on. There's another step of, of the kind, what, is it, what it even means to rectify your own covenant. It's not just rectifying your own covenant on the level, on the cruder level of the bottom half of your body and your being. It also means rectifying the covenant in the upper, higher, more subtle, more inward level of your body and your being, which is the covenant of the tongue. It's the easiest thing in the world to shout perverts, to shout sinners, to shout um, all kinds of dirty words. Or you're saying, this is a, everyone we should all say, this is a sin and this is wrong. And that's the easiest thing. It doesn't work. I thought about it this week, that it used to be that when you told people, wake up, they would wake up. In our generation, if you want to get, if you want to make sure someone will fall asleep, you tell them to wake up. It immediately closes their ears, closes their heart, they become absolutely numb, and they're not going to listen, they're just going mentally, they're going to go to sleep. Ooh, Yehudim, there was to be, there are signs, you know, in the Haredi neighborhoods, right? They're all, wake up, it's wake up, a wake up call. And it's so loud, those bold, big letters, that you become numb. And what happens is, is that you fall asleep. You don't hear it anymore. Why? Because it's, you've heard those words a thousand times. And the way they're said is not a way that cares about you, that sees you, that feels you, that identifies with you. When you start rectifying your own covenant, you realize you have your own weaknesses also. And then, when you translate that to speech, a totally different kind of speech has to come out. And that's the kind of speech we need to develop in our generation. Looking at what's going on in the world, we need to see this as a message from God. You have to start learning a new language. You can't speak the old language. The old language closes up people's hearts and minds. And they, they can't listen to you. You need to surprise them with new words. 
You need to sing. You need to you need to speak from your heart. And you need to be very gentle about it. It's very interesting that um, in 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 the ethics of the fathers, Pirkei Avot, there's a list of ten things that were created just between Friday and Saturday at the creation of the world, the first week of creation. The whole world was created on the sixth day, but then in the twilight zone, between Friday and Saturday, ten things were created, and they're all, they all sort of hover in this twilight zone. The first three things are mouths. Mouths. And the first mouth is the mouth of the earth that swallowed up Korach and his congregation. That was in Parashat Korach. Second mouth is the mouth of the well of Miriam. That was just in the Parasha after that, Parashat Chukat. Third mouth is the mouth of the she donkey of Bilam. That appears in the very next parsh after that, which is Balak. All these mouths that speak or sing or swallow up the sinner, they they are created in a twilight zone. They're not as silent and passive as Shabbat, but they're not as forceful as a regular weekday like Friday. They're in between, they hover in the twilight zone. It's speaking and not speaking. It's being silent and speaking at the same time. Chashmal together. Now, look at something very interesting. What's the fourth thing? The first three things are three mouths. And they appear in three consecutive parashot. The next thing appears to be completely unrelated. But it's actually very deeply related. The fourth thing is the rainbow. That's the fourth thing in the list of ten things created in the twilight hour between Friday and Saturday of the creation of the world. The rainbow that is used in Parshat Noach to display the covenant after the flood. So this appears to have no connection. But when you think about it, if the first three mouths were one after the other in three consecutive parashot, maybe the rainbow has something to do with Pinchas which is the next parasha. And interestingly, there is a deep connection between rainbow and covenant, because the rainbow was part of the covenant with Noah. But even more than that, the rectification of the sexual urge is likened to a bow, an arrow. In order for the arrow to shoot well and be precise and to hit its mark, it, there needs to be an inner tension within yourself. As you draw the arrow and it becomes tense, this is our own person, our own selves being abstinent and being able to uh, control our urges. And then when we control it, then when the seed comes out, that's what the, the image, it's like an arrow shooting and it shoots well because you you uh, were able to control yourself before. The same goes for speaking. We have to control, we have to be in control of what we say we don't say. And we have to aim that the arrow should 
hit its mark. That we have to say few words and, and they have to be very precise and very loving. And another interesting thing, when you shoot an arrow, you never aim exactly at the where you want to hit. You aim higher than that. Because the arrow shooting it itself creates a kind of bow. Right? Simple ballistics. The arrow doesn't go straight, it goes down. So you need to shoot it a little bit higher. And that's the whole art of archery, is how high exactly to aim it. But it's always higher than the, than the mark that you want to hit. When you want to speak to someone, you need to aim higher than what you see. You need to aim at their souls. You don't see their souls. Their souls, the root of their souls is above their heads. That's where you should aim. Think about the root, the pure, beautiful root of their souls, where they for sure want to be the holiest of people. Aim there, and your, your speech will come out completely different. Now, very, very interestingly and ironically, the image of the rainbow is the one adopted in our generation by the culture and the movement that more than anything else celebrates breaking all the boundaries and saying everything is permissible and all love is all love and, all, and the rest of it. So all the flags of the rainbow are everywhere. So looking at the flags, we should say this is reminding us of the covenant of the rainbow. And this connects us to Pinchas, working on our own Brit, our own covenant, and also on the level of speech. Now, the final thing I have to say about this it's not just the words you use, it's how you say them. I said this before. But this comes across in the most beautiful, beautiful way in the full story of what happens to Eliyahu when he comes to Mount Sinai and God asks him, what are you doing here? He says, I, I'm jealous of you and everyone has deserted you and I'm the only one who still cares about you and now I'm being chased myself. What happens after he says this? God tells him, okay, come out of the cave. Come out of the cave. Look, do you see a great, great wind, powerful, that breaks the mountains and breaks the, shatters the rocks? Do you see this wind? I am not in this wind. After the wind came a great rash, earthquake. Do you hear the earthquake? I'm not there. After the earthquake came a great fire. Do you see the fire? I'm not in the fire. Only once the fire dissipated was there a cold mamadaka, a, a small, a still small voice or a still small sound or a sound of silence, a subtle sound of silence. That's where I am, said God. And then, Eliyahu is about to leave. And then the first question comes back. What are you doing here, Eliyahu? As if nothing happened. That's what happened a few verses ago. What are you doing here, Eliyahu? And amazingly, Eliyahu says the exact same answer, word for word. It's not even spelled a little differently. The same, exact same verse repeats itself. He says, I have been jealous of God. Because everyone has deserted you, and they've, they've killed your prophets, and I'm the only one who cares about you, and now I'm being chased. 
But this time, God doesn't tell him to, to go through this workshop of, of how to be a better prophet, of how to identify God's voice. He tells him, okay, resume your duties as, as, as prophet. Go and, and make that, uh, that person a king and the other person a king and find yourself a, a uh, you know, someone who would take your role after you leave. And he said, go back to being a prophet. What happened? Same question, same answer. Why did he immediately told him in the beginning, go, go and resume your, uh, your prophetic duties? Because obviously there's only one answer. He said it completely differently. His tone of voice completely changed. Now how did it change? It changed because God taught him how to speak. Not like a great wind, not like a great earthquake, not like a great fire that consumes, that breaks rocks, that everyone is, uh, <gasps> goes like this, but with a subtle sound of silence, with a still small voice. And that's how your prophecy will work. I want you to be jealous because his jealousy didn't change. In the same, in the same answer, the first one and the second one, he talks about being a jealous person about being having zeal but the way he 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 expresses this zeal has changed first he shouted it like a wind or an earthquake or a fire and then god told him okay that's this is bad zeal <laughs> i don't want that kind of zeal that zeal kills it doesn't work people are first they're at first they're shocked and they're maybe they're taken aback and maybe you'll get some uh, you know, short-term results. But then, nothing is going to change because it doesn't penetrate their hearts. So you have to learn to speak with a still, small voice. And then when he taught him that, he so he gave him a test. What are you doing here, Eliyahu? Now let's see how you respond. Because the first time it was a terrible. <laughs> the, the tone of voice was just horrible. So let's, let's try again. What are you doing here, Eliyahu? So then he says very quietly, I am jealous of you. I care about you. I want to express this to other Jews. I'm the only one who cares and I'm being chased. Exact same answer, word for word. But he says it, he whispers it. And then God says, now you can go back to, be, to being a prophet. And, and this is all has to do with the mouth, with the rectifying the way you speak. It's not even the words. And he's now trying to take away your your zeal, your deep caring of things. He doesn't want people to be apathetic. He loves people not being apathetic. But he wants this caring to come out, to come across the way it should, with a lot of tenderness and a lot of and a lot of care for the for the for the inner soul of the person you're talking to and you're talking about and your own selves. So this is our, uh, our lesson for, for this week from Parashat Pinchas. How do we update Pinchas for our generation? There has to be an element of awe and fear and, and, and zeal in, in the topic of love and relationships. It's part of the whole thing, but it needs to go along with rectifying our own urges and even on a more subtle level 
rectifying the way we talk about it, how we talk about it, what we say and how we say it. And God willing, by taking this lesson to heart and understanding that everything's going on in our generation is really just a big challenge to change our language and change our tone of voice and the way we talk about this, then God willing, it should, it should penetrate the hearts of, of our own selves first and everyone around us. And we shall be able to see everyone discovering the beauty of the covenant of God. Hi, if you enjoyed this class, please click the like button and subscribe to the channel. On YouTube, also make sure to click the bell icon. To keep the classes flowing and free of charge, please consider supporting us on Patreon, an amazing platform for supporting independent creators. You're also welcome to join our weekly live Zoom class every Sunday evening, Israel time. You can find all the links in the description below. Thank you very much, keep healthy, and see you soon.